Tech Sounds presents The Conscious Capitalists. Hello and welcome to The Conscious Capitalists, hosted by two of the co-founders of the Conscious Capitalism Movement and co-authors of the Conscious Capitalism Field Guide from Harvard Business Press, Raj Sisodia and Timothy Henry. Each week, this podcast covers current events and business news and Raj and Timothy's latest thinking on what it takes to build a conscious business. For more information and notes from the show, go to www.theconsciouscapitalists.com. And now, Raj and Timothy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our latest episode of The Conscious Capitalists with myself, Timothy Henry, and my partner, making the world a better place through business, Raj Sasodia. Hey, Raj. Hey, Timothy. Uh, belated Happy New Year. Can't believe it's 23 already. Yes. Well, thank you. Hopefully a better 23 than we had in 22. Um, today, we, you know, for those of you that follow along with our podcasts, we, Raj and I did a little piece on Patagonia a couple months ago. And this week, we're blessed with having the opportunity to talk to the chairman of Patagonia, Charles Kahn. Now, Charles is not only the chair of the board of Patagonia, he's also an investor in medical tech firms. He's an entrepreneur and philanthropist in his own right, a former consultant with both BCG and a partner at McKinsey. Um, he's also completed his term as the CEO of the Rhodes Trust in Oxford, which is the organization that delivers Rhodes scholarships in Oxford. Um, along the way, he was a co-founder and entrepreneur uh, with Ticketmaster and City Search and led that company through its IPO and the acquisition of Match.com, Evite, and other companies. As I mentioned, he began his career at Boston Consulting Group, was a partner at McKinsey, and was educated at Boston University, Harvard Business School, and of course, Oxford, where he was a Rhodes Scholar. Charles, welcome to our show. Uh, thanks very much, Timothy. It's good to good to be here, and uh, nice to see both you and Rosh. Yeah. Well, I mean, I want to get through the technical parts first up front, so... Um, as we understand it, um, when Patagonia has made this new move of switching ownership, there were two aspects of it. One aspect was the voting shares went into a purpose trust and the economic returns went into a charitable 503, 503C1, blah, 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 um, kind of thing. And, um, so tell us a little bit about what the thinking was behind that and 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 what you saw as the pluses and minuses of it. Sure. Um 501c4 is the is is the set mm. of numbers you're talking about. It sounds like one of the droids on the original Star Wars, doesn't it? Um <laughs> C3PO. Uh look, it turns out it's really hard to give a company away to charitable um control in the United States. Um, it's pretty common in Europe. It's possible in Canada. MasterCard Foundation owns 9% of MasterCards based in Canada. Um, it's not easy in the United States. So a typical foundation, a C3, to use the legal term, can't own a concentrated position in a company. So you actually need um, um, a solution like the one we came up with. Um, in our case, we discovered with, with help from a wonderful um, estates lawyer called Dan Mosley, the idea of a purpose trust which provides a, a perpetual ownership structure for the voting shares of the company. And a C4, which is a sister to a C3, 
but one that has much more flexibility in how it gets things done. In particular, a C4 can do activist um, activity in addition to charitable activity. There's one little um, issue with a C4, which is you don't get a charitable deduction when you give money to a C4. But the Schwinnard family didn't care about that. They hadn't been taking giant income, so they didn't have any. They didn't have any income to uh, to count off against a big charitable deduction. So one of the reasons people don't use C4s wasn't meaningful for the Schinard family. That's mm -hmm. why we went with this um, particular structure, which other folks hadn't done up to that point in time. Yeah, so it's it's really unique, and and I think the other aspect of it is is that if I got this correct, the perpetual trust has the voting rights on the business and has the oversight of the business. And then the the C4 gets the economic benefits of That's right. the profits. The perpetual trust um, has the primacy. Um, and that's why we use that structure. You could just use the C4, but mm. the, this, this perpetual trust um, provides a genuinely long-term stewardship for the values that guide both that trust and the C4 structure. Um, it, what we were looking for, obviously the family could have tried to pass the shares to the second generation. Lots of families try and do that. The Chouinards have all, all, always given away um, most of the money that comes from Patagonia. But all of the family, including the second generation, the, the kids of Yvonne Melinda, wanted a permanent solution to Patagonia. Um, following the kind of values that it established a long time ago um, and which were enshrined in 2018 by our new mission, which is we're in business to save the home planet. We've had different versions of that earlier. And as Yvonne got older, um, you know, he's been doing this for 50 years now. Patagonia mm -hmm. is in its 50th year. He wanted a solution and the rest of the family wanted a solution that wasn't subject to, you know, the whims of some future generation. Mm -hmm. And the charter that guides this purpose trust, um, which uh, which which Claire Schoenard is one of the key authors of, provides a genuinely long-term structure for the the values of of um, that the company will be governed by. Cool. And so, what does this mean in terms of the actual board's role now? And um, as I understand it, you've, you, you've sort of still got some of the same board involved, but what's shifted from the point of view of the board and its, its quote-unquote, yeah. fiduciary responsibility? <laughs> Timothy, I think it's a great question, and I'll, I'll give you a funny answer, which is nothing and everything, <laughs> right? And, you know, you kind of expected that probably, which is, you know, the day-to-day -day board of the company is the same board. Um, we have the same family members on the board. We have the same independent members of the board. The company continues to be a for-profit company, and we are vigorous competitors. We want to make a better rain jacket than our competitor. So in some sense, our day-to-day -day doesn't change. On the other hand, instead of now reporting to shareholders, you know, which was always the Schwinnard family, now we report to this purpose trust. And the Purpose Trust has its own board, which at the moment is mostly family members, but even they are guided and bound by the charter that they all agreed to. And as a consequence, the board really has to think about things in a different way. Like if you're shifting from 
reporting to shareholders to reporting to a mission to be in business to save the home planet. You have to mm. consider every business decision in a different way. Previously, you might have said, is this, is this a profitable decision? And of course, we've always had a mission that said we should do the least harm. Mm. Now, but, but, but that might lead to profits that are then distributed to shareholders who then give the money away. Now we have a much more direct relationship to the planet being our shareholder, which is every action we make, every step we take as a company, we need to ask the question, mm. how is this in concert with being owned by the planet? And I think, I think that shifts your head. Um, mm. I don't think it makes life easier. I think it makes life harder. Every product we make already has a footprint. We know what that footprint is. We've over the years gotten better, better, better and better accounting far beyond what you think of as ESG on the impact, environmental impact of each product we make. But every single decision we face now, we have to ask the question, is this worthy? Is this correct for a company that's owned by the earth? You know, Charles, uh, I've seen parallels to this outside the US. Uh, Novo Nordisk, I believe in Denmark, is owned by charitable trusts. Uh, of course, in India, we have the Tatas, which are owned by about 17, about 70%, I think, if I forget, remember the number of these uh, share ownership of Tata Sons is with 17 charitable foundations that have been set up over the years. And those, those two, I think, are more about aligning with society. Uh, right and and of course in Patagonia's case it's about aligning with the earth which is which is a distinction uh, but did you look at models across the world I'm assuming you did we did and as I mentioned at the outset it's difficult in the United States to be owned in the same way that Tata is owned or Novo Nordisk or IKEA or uh -huh. even the large stake that's owned by the MasterCard Foundation um, for example we looked at all those models and there are many others as well by the way um, Carlsberg has some of that kind of ownership. Rolex has that some mm. of that kind of ownership. Um, I should also say right at the outset that while we've transferred the shares to a, a combination of this purpose trust and uh, the C4s, and our principal mission is environment, we also believe we have a social obligation and a community obligation we were the first benefit corporation in California, and we have a charter that also sets out our social aims, and that includes commitments to our communities and to our staff and to our employees. Um, so just like those other organizations, we also believe that companies have commit, have, have and should have commitments to community. Did you look at all about the idea of employee ownership directly in some way, yeah, shape, or form? And how did that yeah. play out in the equation here? We did. The, the, the issue here is we wanted to free up a lot of resources to fight the environmental crisis. Mm -hmm. If you look at the typical, the typical way an employee stock ownership um, setup works, the employees borrow money to acquire the shares from the, the original founders. They yeah. take on debt um, and then they service that debt with the profits of the company and whatever's left over, they distribute to themselves. Well, that you know that's not a bad idea. It's a good idea. It works in many um, services firms. It works in lots of professional services firms as well. Mm. But think about it in our case. In our case, what we wanted to do was maximize the amount of value that would go to fighting the environmental crisis. 
if we burden Patagonia with all of this debt, the amount of money that would be left over to fight the environmental crisis would be less. And mm. so although we thought hard about that, that didn't look like the right um, structure. It also turns out to be really complicated for multinational companies. Mm. Um, that's why you usually see employee stock ownership um, companies in a single country and why they're yeah. often professional services companies. Yeah. Um, we operate uh, globally. So, you know, you brought up the point that it was sort of um, now that you've got nature as the beneficiary um, and you said, you know, that makes it really complicated to make decision making um, in a way. Doesn't that play into the woke capitalism, anti ESG argument that, listen, the, the shareholder makes it simple when it gets more complicated and you've got all these different competing things and you know i gotta say nature probably has some very competing things even within nature water air land um i'm curious does how do you respond to that does or you know is it, are, it, are they right and it is complicated <laughs> right well so i'm glad you asked um uh i think it i i, I as you as you probably know from what i've said publicly, I think the whole woke capitalism thing is a bunch of baloney. Um, the truth is, because we've transferred our shares to this charitable trust uh, that has a mission around saving the, the home planet, it crystallizes a set of trade-offs that are always there. Mm. And no company, whether private or public, actually operates in a vacuum from those choices. Mm. Even the most um, vicious capitalistic company has to pay attention to the communities that it lives in and the regulations that it that it has to operate under how what's required for it to attract and retain great staff and teams and uh how it operates in a way that attracts better or worse shareholders and there are such a thing as better or worse shareholders i think a lot of this sort of esg debate is just plain silly these very large companies, the Black Rocks of the world, that actually control the votes for a huge percentage of the shares of all the economy, are making smart long-term decisions. Mm. For them, it's not about being woke. It's about look. Their job is to look thirty or fifty or hundred years into the future and say, what actually is value maximizing and when you start to extend beyond the quarterly system that we that we usually measure public companies by and you think i actually have to hold these shares in perpetuity mm. your indifference to environment community and staff disappears pretty damn quick and it should so i i guess what i would argue is yeah it's complicated and in our case we've we've put our nose in it but every company operates in a system where if they really thought about it this way, they'd be, they, they have to take into account those trade-offs. We all do. And I, I just love this thought experiment. And, you know, Warren Buffett's a, a good example here. I love the, th all big endowments, the thought experiment, which is what if you couldn't sell the shares, right? We, we have this like get in, get out mentality. But that's not the way the, the greatest companies and the greatest investors are not get in, get out people. Yeah, yeah. These are no, you're real. right. I mean, if you if you were going to only own a, a stock for a day or a week, you'd right. use one framework for evaluating it. If you had to own it forever, you'd use a very different framework. <laughs> you can afford to be a sleaze uh, if you're in and out, but if you are actually multi generational, 
you really need mm. to think about community, staff, yeah. environment. Have to. Yeah. Right? Yvonne likes to say, like, ultimately, we're responsible not to our shareholders, our staff, even our communities. We're responsible to the resource base that allows companies to exist. Mm -hmm. That resource base is the planet. And that includes our soils, our waters, our stored energy sources, all the things that make life possible. The way I frame that now is that we kind of need a Copernican revolution in business, where before Copernicus, we thought the earth was the center of the universe and everything revolved around that. And of course, in business, we put profit at the center of our universe and people and the planet and society and everything revolves around that. Uh, you only do things that increase profits and regardless of the impact on the other things. So I think we need a Copernican revolution that places life at the center. That includes people, but the planet and other species as well. And I think Patagonia to me is the purest uh, representation of that ideal. And there are very few companies that are all the way at, at that end of the spectrum, which have the kind of purity, and but they show us what is possible when you have this commitment. Uh, one of the things that I have noticed with the 50C4 is that the, the ability to lobby, which of course can be used in a self-serving way, and largely that's been the case, but I think that's been an important part of Patagonia's mission. I think Yvonne has always said, you know, Patagonia remains a relatively small company with a disproportionate opportunity to have an impact in the world on much larger companies, like years ago with Walmart, right, when Patagonia was uh, impacting them. Uh, so I think this idea of lobbying and changing perhaps some of the laws uh, in the U.S. that make it harder for this kind of a structure to exist, uh, but even beyond that. So what what, what are the, uh, the thoughts in terms of how Patagonia intends to engage in, in, in public policy issues going forward? Yeah, I think that's I do think it's a really good question. And I think it's another one of these boundary questions that we often um, get caught up on. Right. Um, we think companies should stand for something and we're not afraid to say that we don't think com companies should be neutral creators of profit that distribute that profit to shareholders who make their own decisions about what to put the money toward that's the milton friedman 1970 model we reject that patagonia very clearly says we stand for this we're in business to save the home planet we are not afraid to be activists and that means we will lobby the government for policies that we think will help save the home planet. And it means we'll sue the government if we think that that's the appropriate thing to do. It means we support young activist organizations, um, including some um, that push right up to the very edge, um, because we think that's how change happens. Change is, you, you guys know this, change is hard to make in the world, right? A lot of us really have a vested interest in the system as it sits today especially those at the top of the capitalist mm. system. If we want the world to change, we have to support, you know, and it's often the younger generation, right? You know, there's a, you, I, people sometimes say like, you know, who's the, who's the person who's made the biggest impact on the things we care about? Well, you could argue that it's a young Swedish woman, um, mm. you know, who doesn't come from any power, she doesn't come from any power, but by speaking up, she's been able to cause people to stop and pay attention. And as a company that stands for something, we think that we should support that. And companies always did, you know, and they usually did it quietly and behind the scenes, right? And, but we, we, think, we think it's fine uh, and, and appropriate and correct 
that we stand behind what we do. You know, I got the opportunity a few years ago to go to Ecuador and with the Pachamama Alliance that was started by Lynn and Bill Twist years ago. And, and Ecuador was the first country that enshrined nature as having rights uh, alongside humans and others. And actually, you can sue on behalf of nature. You can sue companies, you can sue other, you know, even the government. You can sue the government on behalf of nature. And I believe there are a number of countries now uh, that have done that to a lesser extent. I think uh, in the US, it's only at the level of cities and certain municipalities and others that have enshrined that. But that seems to be a promising direction. I think there's a growing movement around that idea. Yeah, and, we, and obviously we support that. And you know, we've seen, as you say, smaller in Canada, the United States, there are smaller windows for that, but some of them are really important. You know, the the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, which um, which folks are always trying to gut, the idea of stream in-stream reservations of water, um, the idea of ecosystem services is slowly making its way from economics into law. Well, that actually leads to um, a, a, a point you made in your Fortune article when you were talking about Milton Friedman that it was a well-reasoned argument, but got to the wrong conclusion <laughs> in essence. Do you want to maybe expand on that a little bit more, and, and maybe what 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 does that mean going forward? Sure. Well, I mean, I you know, it's easy to trash um, Friedman from the from the perspectives that I that I live in today, but I do think it's important to you know to read the piece and to understand it. It's well done, but it's well done within a schema of beliefs that just aren't true. So, in Friedman's world, there's perfect competition. There's perfect information. There's perfect regulation, and there are no positive or negative externalities. None of those things are true. Inside those boundaries, his conclusion sounds right. Companies' jobs are to maximize profit. You distribute that to the owners of the business. The, those owners then choose their own charitable or consumption needs. But in a world where we have tons of negative externalities, companies that damage the environment that we all breathe, which, by the way, tends to be asymmetrically visited upon already disadvantaged people. We know this, right? We know this now. So those least well-off economically among us also get most of the crap, the, the negative externalities of the system in addition. We know that there isn't perfect competition. In fact, we live in an increasingly winner-takes-all world. Right. Think about big media companies now. Think about the power that they command compared to the past. Regulators are completely outclassed, especially in multinational corporations. They just move jurisdictions. They shift profit around. And so Friedman's world was a pretty world for a group of neoclassical economics from roughly 1950 to 1970. And business schools taught that, including long after that. That's not the world we live in. And the conclusions that flow from that model are wrong. Well, what I like about that is, and I want to connect the dot here. I mean, one of our co-founders, John Mackey, the co-founder of uh, Whole Foods, you know, he's famous for having taken on Milton Friedman and, uh, in Reason Magazine and actually go point counterpoint. And, you know, his point was that, you know, and it's slightly different from the one you're taking, 
but related was that um, in essence, the best way to make profit was to have a stakeholder perspective. <laughs> that if you really had customers who were raving fans, employees that really wanted to work there were highly motivated, if your suppliers really wanted to work with you and the communities loved having you in the in their their space, then guess what? You were probably going to be a much more successful company. Then again, thought experiment, the opposite, where people are not happy with any of those things. And it's very difficult to make money in, in that world. So, um, you know, that was coming at it from a slightly different way that said great businesses, great businesses um, survive and thrive because they take a balanced view of the many different elements that go into their success across multiple stakeholders. Yeah, let's stop on that for one minute, though, because I think it's I think it's a really important place to sort of draw another line, which is, I think that's why you see um, folks like the Business Roundtable, like mm. uh, BlackRock and other big um, holders of financial assets, taking a gen generally ESG positive view, because mm. they have to hold shares for a long time, they really agree with what you just said and what John Mackey has said, which is doing the right thing is good business. And Yvonne Chouinard has also said that. Um, I guess what I'd love to put a line under, though, is what if it isn't good business? Mm. What if what what if what if doing those things isn't enough? Mm. Would we still do the right thing? Yeah. And I think, you know, I think that's where you really need to take a deep breath and ask yourself, I think it's a. By the way, I I think I I I remember that debate. I think it's a great um, place that it ended up. I agree with everything you just said, especially if you take a longer term perspective than the, than than the quarterly perspective. But I think as humans, we need to face up to the bigger question, which is, are we willing to make the changes in our behavior that would allow would allow um, good outcomes, even if um, that wasn't enough. You know, you, it's a cake and eat it world too. Yeah, yeah. That, that that BlackRock is espousing, which is, oh hey, it happens to be profit maximizing to do the right thing. Yeah. Not always. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes doing the right thing actually costs us all. Are we up? Mm. Are we up for that? Mm. I don't think you can put a smiley face on stakeholder capitalism. Mm -hmm. I yeah. think a lot of stakeholder capitalism is a fig leaf, not a smiley yeah. face. Mm -hmm. Well, but, but you touched on something important when you said that, uh, you know, we don't take into account externalities. And, you know, one of the probably easiest ways to begin that reform discussion is to move to if we fully costed all of the inputs and fully costed all of the outputs and the, and the results of those outputs, um, we would have a different equation for what was profit and when what wasn't. And it seems to me that that's the, the 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 near cousin of that line you just drew, which is, you know, we got to go there first and maybe begin with something as simple as a carbon tax, which we've struggled with for right. years as being probably one of the low hanging fruits in that space. But, but I think this is really important. You know, the if we could move toward a world in which you know the jacket that you're wearing, which is uh, for for those for those who don't have the visuals, is a nice Patagonia jacket. <laughs> was actually priced at what at, at all of the costs and that is exactly what we try and do right i mean you know we we ask mm. all of our factories to switch their energy to renewable energy we require that 
we take account of all of the carbon that's produced, all of the dangerous chemicals that are produced, and very few of our garments have any of those today, all of the water that's, um, that, that is used. And we try, what we believe by being a responsible company is that we pay the real price of all those things, and that has to get passed along in the price of the garment. That's one of the reasons why we try and make garments that last forever, mm-hmm. that that are multifunctional so that your raincoat isn't just good in the city, it's also good in the countryside. And then when it comes to the end of its uh, life, we can either repair it and sell it to somebody else or recycle it. And that means you have to design the zippers to come out and you can't have two layers of fabric that are incompatible with each, with each other fused together because then you can't recycle the jacket. You need to think in this full regenerative way. And if that means that a jacket costs 1.5 times or 2.3 times, you know, the fast fashion um, version of that, that's what you should pay. Probably we'd all think really carefully about how we purchase stuff and we'd take really good care of our stuff. That's how it used to be, right? Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah, and I think Patagonia is leading the way towards conscious consumption, right? That we are mindful about what we're buying and, you know, what, what are the consequences of that. And I think that's that's one of the big uh, gaps out there. You know, we've kind of trained customers to look for the lowest price and not ask for what are the implications. You know, one of the things I've seen this very personally in India, I saw a Google Earth image of the area around my mother's village where she grew up. And there was a big, beautiful river that comes into that town. The village is about seven kilometers away from that town. And it's one of the big rivers of India. But then a textile plant got put there. Uh, and you see that downstream, it's, the river becomes a much narrower kind of black, you know, trickle. And there's no life. Not even bacteria can exist in that water. And all of the fields around that are gray. And you know, upstream, everything is green and flourishing and so forth. And a company is allowed to do this. And, like and are we richer for that? Yeah, and what about all the people? So it's just, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. Of course we're not. You know what's funny is that you guys have probably have noticed this yourself. When you go into really old houses, I grew up in a house that was built in 1734. Here, where I live in Europe, many, many, many uh, dwellings are much older than that. Have you noticed how many closets they have? <laughs> not many. They don't have closets. Why don't they have closets? Because people used to have a smaller number of garments. If you've read books like Fashionopolis, you'll know that people buy 30, 40, 50 garments a year. Many garments are worn less than five times and then are thrown away. What happens when they get thrown away? Well, they get shipped back to places like India where that waste then further oppresses the people that produce them. And um, we just need to get our head right. You know, there's nothing wrong with having stuff that you feel good about how you look in it. There's nothing wrong with having stuff that you love its functionality. But we all ought to be sort of be, as you just put it, conscious, thoughtful about what we purchase and how we look after it. You know, I was on a Delta flight recently and the, uh, the toiletry bag that they gave had this, uh, this tag on it. It says someone somewhere and you can click on that QR code and you can meet the artisan uh, community, uh, the people in Mexico who made this using natural and recycled materials. You know, it's a simple thing that kind of closes that loop that connects the buyer with the producer and humanizes, you know, the whole equation. I think that's, that's the kind of thing that, you know, that, that we need to do more of. And maybe that would make us, and I think there's a movement of this sort, right? Where um, 
people are want to know where their food comes from mm-hmm. and they want to know the makers of their food. They also want to know who made their clothes and they want to be in mm-hmm. relationship with those people. I mean, imagine if you if you knew, you know, where, where a sweater came from or where your sweater came from. I think there's a kind of pleasure that comes from that that's really different from the pleasure of mindless consumption of something that you don't really need, right? Many of us have many things in our closet that we purchased because they were on sale or because we thought that that mm-hmm. was the, the 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 fashionable thing of the time. And then we look back yeah. and we think, oh God, that looks terrible. Yeah. I mean, that's the worst kind of consumption, right? Yeah, you know, but it raises an interesting question, Charles, which is that, um, and I think Whole Foods has struggled with this being a pioneer in organic farming and organic food was that for a very long time, you know, the option of going organic from a consumer point of view was very expensive and it becomes this chicken and egg. If there's not enough farming, then the prices are higher and if prices are higher, there's not enough consumers. And so I absolutely agree with what you just said. And I'll take a place like we're both resident in the UK right now. You know, they say that the grocery inflation inflation is, you know, not the 10 or 11 percent that's being reported overall, but closer to 17 or 18, 20 percent in terms of just putting food on the table for your average family or your working class or just above poverty line family. Now is a time when price is incredibly important and um, it's almost a luxury to decide well, I'd like to choose this versus that. And I'm wondering how you reconcile that in your mind with the, yeah, you know, the conscious consumer who decides whether or not to spend this amount here or this amount there versus the, you know, we're at a substance level and um, there are real trade-offs around this versus that. So the low fashion brand price that my daughter can get in a fast fashion store for 20 pounds wow, you know, that's a good choice for her because she doesn't have another option to go with the 30-pound option. Yeah, I hear that. And I don't want to suggest that there's some sort of, you know, simple answer to that conundrum that you described. But I would like to notice one thing, though, which is in 1940, we spent something like 40% of our incomes on food. And in the United States today, people spend about 8% of their incomes on food. And so an interesting question would be, well, where's where's the rest of that money gone? How much of that goes to incredibly complicated and expensive automobiles instead of into really great public transportation like you you and I both enjoy in London? How much of that goes into sort of trying to keep up with the Joneses in terms of what we wear? How much of that goes into things that don't actually um, lead to our well-being. And so I think I think real conscious consumption requires an examination of our every part of how we live, not just at the margin what carrots we buy. So I, I'm, I'm not trying to slip out and say it's easy. I don't think it is easy. But we also have to decide what other things we're what other elements of lifestyle we're buying into that cause us to feel like we can only spend 8% of our incomes on food. Charles, uh, we um, like to also understand the life stories of our guests and what shaped them into being the leaders that they are and what were their influences. 
so if you could talk a little bit about your upbringing, your childhood, and then I know you went to Harvard, uh, and what was your mindset coming out of Harvard and how that evolved. So if you could just share a little bit of your personal evolution. Sure. Um, I mean, you know, these things are sort of, you know, complicated and arbitrary, aren't they? Um, you know, I grew up with uh, with one parent who was an artist and one parent who was a scientist. And I think that is a wonderful thing to have through my whole life. I mean, both uh, a reverence for things that are you know, beautiful and please us and also a reverence for science and facts. And I think those two themes have, you know, played out in my life um, over time. Um, I've ended up um, pursuing a path that knit together, you know, science. And for me, that ultimately was um, was lived out through conservation, through through conservation biology. And now I also um, I also work in the life sciences um, space. Um, and I've chosen jobs over time, you know, where hopefully where where you know that that intersection of science and art come together. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I I I went to Oxford. I learned a ton about you know philosophy, which I think was really powerful. I went to business school. I learned a lot about Milton Friedman and shareholder capitalism. I spent some years um, reforming myself from that. I learned a bunch about how the economy works, um, including working in um, businesses that I would never work in today. I'm, you know, for, I'm not interested in you know B to C internet businesses, even though I did participate in some of those. I think you know, when you get closer to the end of your life, I'm uh, in my 60s now. The only thing I think is worth spending my time on is um, solving the environmental crisis so that our kids have a future and solving human health problems. Because I think when people have health security, they're much more likely to look after the future. And in some way, I think this, Raj, this goes full circle to part of our earlier conversation, which is timeframes matter a lot. If, if, if we think about a day, um, we we come up with a different solution to problems than, than if we think about our kids' kids' futures. And mm -hmm. I think if we really embrace these longer term perspectives, um, it shifts how it shifts how we think about things. And I think my my personal journey through all these different, you know, both business and and uh, and conservation roles um, is is. And maybe it's an indication of 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 reaching toward that longer term perspective. Mm -hmm. um, I ran an internet company. We took it public. We sold it. It's all good stuff, right? And then when I got done with that, I didn't feel like I needed to do that again. <laughs> and I went mm -hmm. to work with Gordon Moore, who who was the founder of Intel, and he was starting his environmentally focused environmental and science focused foundation. And um, you know that I began to shift my life much more fundamentally toward longer term purpose yeah i love that and as you look forward you know what do you see as the one or two big changes that you think we've got to all be focused on um to really yeah. shift this system and, and i also yeah. want to look at that from the point of view of we haven't talked about it but you're the author of your of the bulletproof problem solving book <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which says we can address all of these problems if we have the right framework so tell me a little bit about the the problems that you think we're sure. we're going to address that way 
Sure. Well, so uh, let me take the first part of your question first, which is, I think it's in, implicit or explicit in all the conversation up to this moment, which is, and it's and it's very much in line with the with the words uh, that that define your podcast, which is we need to be conscious, and um, that means we need to be conscious as workers, and we need to be conscious as consumers, we need to be conscious as owners of businesses, we need to be conscious as citizens and as parents. And I think if we are awake, not woke, but I think if we're awake to this longer term perspective, we'll start to shift our behavior. We'll think hard about, you know, what jacket we buy, who we buy it from. Maybe Raj will have, a, will start to desire, have a pull toward knowing the people who made, who make the clothes we wear and make the food we eat. And I think we'll start to take pleasure in things that people don't even pay attention to today. If we could shift our consumption to minimizing the negative impacts on the planet and maximizing the kind of spiritual enjoyment um, that we can get from non-destructive practices. And you know, that for everybody that's something different. But you know, when I do yoga or when I when I write write a book, that doesn't harm you, right? And when I zip around on a snowmobile, it probably does. Mm. And I think we just thought of, you know, I think if we wake up to this longer term perspective, we'll slowly and subtly change our behaviors, hopefully fast enough to save the planet because there's 8 billion of us. Now, I do think many of these things are not simple. And I think people working together in small groups to crack these problems is the only way forward. Um, and that's why I wrote wrote the book on problem solving, much of which you'll see in the book is applied to solving environmental problems. You know, there's that famous Margaret Mead quote that you that you're it's ringing in all your heads right now, right? It's not remarkable that small groups of people um, are are the folks who change the world. It's the only way it's ever happened. So, the, yeah, I don't know. That's uh, that's a phil philosophical answer to your question, but I I hope the right one. Well said. Well, thank you, Charles. This has been really enlightening and, uh, you know, great to connect with you. And we could go much deeper on so many of these dimensions, but we look forward to yeah. Patagonia gaining new strength and new heights uh, under this sure. uh, leadership and uh, in this direction. Well, thanks. I mean, it's been great fun talking. And I guess the one thing I'm always left with when I have conversations like this, when you're sort of essentially with fellow travelers who, you know, mm -hmm. are on the same journey, is how do we take the conversation that we had today, which isn't making anyone wrong or making anyone bad, but how do we take that conversation broad, more broadly so that we're having influence um, uh, in, to, a, to a bigger group of people than just the people who um, already believe it? You know, there is this conscious capitalist movement that we're, yeah. we're trying to do that with, and it, it is um, constantly an important question to keep front and center. And um and try to get fellow travelers to to come along one last thing i love your, your I, you know i take away a quote here we want to be awake not woke and i think that's that's exactly the theme that we want to come out of this conversation with how do we wake up ourselves to the current reality and become more conscious in all the dimensions that you mentioned um charles thank you so much for a stimulating discussion and uh we look forward to continuing the dialogue on what comes next and how do we start to, to take some concrete next steps on this.
Raj and Timothy, it's been a great pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Thank, thank you, Charles. And thank you very much to our listeners. And if you enjoyed today's podcast, feel free to go over to Apple and iTunes and leave us some comments and um, give us a rating. And if you enjoyed the, the context of our discussion today, look to the Conscious Capitalist Movement at ConsciousCapitalism.org. And a big thanks to our producers um, at Tech de Monterey and Tech Sounds. And Raj, anybody else you want to thank? Well, I want to acknowledge the Conscious Enterprise Center at Tech, uh, which is striving to bring this movement into the world in a more scalable and sustainable way. So uh, really appreciate the support for this podcast. Thank you all and see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>